This is StoryTech. I'm Jeff Kaufman. Well, hello. How are you? Back in the fall, I went to visit an old colleague from ABC News. I was doing the numbers, and I think I haven't seen you since you left in 2005. You left ABC? 2005. A lot of Americans will know this voice. Can I offer you a cup of coffee? This is Ted Koppel, the former host of ABC News Nightline and one of the most famous broadcasters from the golden age of TV news. That's a lot of Emmys you got up there. Wow. They uh, ended up there because my wife wouldn't let me put them in the house. Ted is too modest to say it, but he has 43 Emmys, souvenirs of his four decades as a reporter, foreign correspondent, and anchor at ABC. I met Ted at his home on the shores of the Potomac River outside Washington. A restored barn is his office. Now tell me again, while I'm making my coffee, tell me what this project is. So the project is called StoryTech, and I... I came here to talk to Ted about how technology shaped storytelling in his storied career. Before he became an anchor, Ted was a foreign correspondent like me and he saw firsthand one of the most important transitions in television technology. He was a young, very young, reporter covering the Vietnam War, the first war to be broadcast into American living rooms. Here's one of Ted's early reports on ABC. Drastic measures were taken to force a break between the Viet Cong and the people. When the Viet Cong evaded pursuit, people who sheltered them were removed to government camps. Their homes burned, their livestock killed, and the rice in their fields destroyed. As you're about to hear, it is a great story how Ted and other reporters worked with very cumbersome 16-millimeter film. But the enduring story of that war is the impact of those TV news reports and how they changed the course of world history. From Antica Productions, Trent, and the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University, in cooperation with WAER Syracuse, an NPR member station, this is StoryTech. This is a personal journey I want to share with you. I spent the first 30 years of my career as a broadcast journalist, foreign correspondent, and war correspondent, and the last eight years as founder and CEO of Trint, a tech company focused on transcription and streamlining the workflow of storytelling. We have seen so much technological change come at us so fast. The idea behind this podcast is to explore how those changes have shaped what we watch, what we read, and what we listen to. Today, the 16-millimeter war. So let's, let's begin. Do you want to put up two mics? Ted Koppel landed in Vietnam in 1967. He was just 26 years old. Uh, you know, the American involvement was already, technically speaking, three or four years old. It wasn't exactly a new story. So I'd, I knew pretty much what to expect. My greatest concern, I must tell you, when I landed in Vietnam, uh, and one of the first questions I put to some of the first military guys that I saw was, 
is it better to keep your uniform tucked into the boots or tie them outside the boots because the concern was leeches. I had read some articles in Time magazine about how the leeches were just awful. And you spent a lot of time, you know, marching through rice paddies, uh, you know, going through areas of water. and the, What was the answer before we move on? The, the answer was whatever works for you, just try it. And were there a lot of leeches? Uh, I don't recall ever being leached. This is the story of the Vietnam War. Not the story in terms of importance, but because what you're about to see in these next few minutes is probably as typical as anything of the Vietnam War. So, so let's talk about how you chronicled the Vietnam War. You had a very different tool set than I did and you did when we covered, say, the Iraq War 20 years ago. And when we think of our... You're looking for a photograph? Yeah, I thought I, I, thought I had one. Um, what does the photograph show us? At this point, Ted gets out of his chair to get a photograph, a black and white image of a very young Ted Koppel in a khaki shirt and trousers holding a microphone. He is standing next to a burnt-out truck flipped on its side. Wow, you were a kid. What a great picture. I was a kid. Wow. In the picture, a cable connects Ted's hand mic to a sound man who has a mixer hanging from his neck. It's about the size of a toaster, and it's connected to a very large film camera perched on the shoulder of the cameraman. The camera has two big round discs on top of it for the film reels, like Mickey Mouse ears. Is that, that's the equipment. So... Yeah, there, are two, there are two guys shooting. So this man was Vietnamese, the sound man, and the cameraman, uh, Injip Choi, is uh, Korean. Uh, he is now in his early 90s, lives in Australia, and he and I still, still communicate. But you can see he's carrying a large Oricon camera, and that was good for... 10 minutes worth of film. We live in an age now where you just let the camera run, right? I mean, you, you shoot it all. You couldn't possibly shoot it all if you only had 10 minutes worth of film. Now, we're carrying equipment, and I had a backpack, and in that backpack would be three or four rolls of additional film. Each one, 10 minutes. Each one, 10 minutes. But in order to get that roll of film into this camera, the cameraman had to take the camera apart and inside a black bag, without being able to see what he was doing, because he doesn't want to expose the film to light, he would unscrew one of these circular... The, the, those are film canisters, right? Those, or film those, reels, I guess. One is empty and one is full. One is empty, one is full. And as soon as the empty one is full and the full one is empty, he would take it off, put it inside a black bag, unscrew it, and by feel, you couldn't see it, 
simply by tactile, he would exchange the exposed film for a fresh roll and put the fresh roll in. And then we would be carrying those cans of film, of exposed film, with us for the rest of the days. Sometimes, if we were on an operation, uh, you know, there'd be there'd be no way to get the film back to Saigon until we got back. Either, if we were up north uh, in Da Nang, for example, covering the Marines, then we would give that film to a Marine who was heading back to Saigon, we would get on the phone, which in and of itself was pretty trying in those days. We're talking, we're talking phones with wires or radio phones? No, we're talking, we're talking phones with wires that are, uh, you know, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And, and who are you calling? Uh, I was trying to call the office. This is ABC Saigon? ABC Saigon. And we would tell ABC Saigon, you got to send someone out to Tonsonut, to the airport, and there will be a Marine carrying our film, coming in on a flight, hopefully in the next uh, six hours or so. That film would then get transferred to another flight, from Saigon to Tokyo. In Tokyo, we'd have someone from the Tokyo Bureau transfer that film onto a flight to Los Angeles, and in Los Angeles, it would be transshipped to New York. In New York, a motorcycle courier would pick that film up, and the film, I don't think I have one here, we had these onion skin bags, which had ABC News all over them. We, we used them for videotape even when I was at ABC. Yeah, yeah. Right. How many days later are we? Probably at least two, sometimes three. And that is before the film even gets developed in a bath of chemicals. And the processing took time. And then an editor has to hang up the strips of film is sort of going through a, a viewing, a scanning machine, looking for the scenes that he or she wants, physically cuts them, physically hangs them with uh, clothespins from wires over a bin. And then those pieces of film are physically glued together. This is breaking news in slow motion. This is breaking news in slow motion. And here's the, here's the really bad part that you had to consider. Radio is not inhibited technologically the same way. When you're in Saigon, you can get on the line. I mean, the ABC would buy a line from New York to Saigon, as I recall, a couple of times a day. And you could feed the live descriptions that you had done, or just the spots that you had written. Right. This is Ted in Saigon. This is Ted in, or this is yeah. Ted in right. Da Nang. That gets on the air probably the same day. Sometimes it gets on the air within half an hour. So 
as a correspondent covering radio and television, you're in the curious position of being not exactly in competition with yourself, but you know that the, the headline of your story has already been on the air all over the ABC radio network, like two days before your film shows up. So when you're writing your script, you have to be conscious of the fact that people already know how many Americans died in this particular engagement, what the, you know, what the hard news headline of the story was. So you would have to write the story in a somewhat different way. How do you do that? Because you're in the jungle, you're shipping something off that is two, three, four days from air. Well, two, let's say two days. Okay, but you have to, the hardest thing, and all of us as reporters have done this, is you you commit something on camera and you realize you've boxed yourself in because things have changed or it's it's not accurate anymore. So So you can't do anything that locks you in in terms of time. Because there's another factor you can't control. What do those idiots back in New York do with your story? <laughs> do they put it on that You're day? being polite. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, how do they edit it? And what do they leave in? What, what do they take out? And when do they know? And when do they use it? Do they use it the first day as soon as it gets in? I mean, let's say there's a, there's a big factory fire in Dayton. And seven people are killed. So it gets bumped from World News. And it gets bumped from World News because World News doesn't have time for your story that day. And remember your story, the Associated Press, United Press International, Reuters, the New York Times, depending on how many people were along on the operation that you covered, your story has already been out there. Five years of fighting have produced an artificial quiet in the countryside. The roads that had been cut and mined by the Viet Cong are being rebuilt. Bridges blown up to prevent easy access to the old Viet Cong zones are being put back up. It's easy to use American steel and muscle to open the way to the countryside for our allies, but as we turn the war over to the Vietnamese, the question remains whether they can keep the way open. What you were doing with film and, the, and, and, and all the, your peers at other networks was cutting-edge technology in its time. This was the first televised war. Right. So the thing you've got going for you is everyone else is talking about it. You're showing it to them. So in writing your story, you have to emphasize what the other people cannot do. Look at this. Watch that. See this. The uh, you know the fact of the matter is that you've got American wounded. You're showing them. Now it may be two days old, but it's still the first time anyone has seen it. StoryTech is sponsored by Trint, the automated transcription and content creation tool made by storytellers for storytellers. Trint can help turn audio and video files into articles, podcasts, and videos faster and easier than ever before. 
A discount code STORYTECH25 is available on annual plans at Trint.com. Did you have a sense at that point how revolutionary this was, that that covering war, and even with a 48-hour, 60-hour delay, that this was a complete revolution in communications? Um, I wish I could say yes, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure I really did recognize You were, after all, 26. I was 26, and uh, yes, it was revolutionary as we look back on it now, but I'd never known anything else. But if you, th- if you look at previous conflicts, if you look at, say, how the news from World War II was communicated to audiences, there was no television. No, but there was film. There were the movie tone and Pathé newsreels. Exactly. European theater of operations, Allied power continues to crack down on Hitler's borders. Heavy guns force the enemy lines to break at Anzio. But they were really dated and they were, they weren't journalism in the, in the sense. They were more dated. Remember, I've just told you, my stuff is dated. Yeah. It's only, I mean, it's dated two days. Right. Maybe three days. So it's not this just in. And, and I presume the lag back in World War II was pretty long. They had to ship oh, it across. Absolutely. It could be weeks. But I mean, as a kid who would go to, I mean, there, there were actually theaters in the late 40s that did nothing but show newsreels. With those booming voices. With those booming voices. So, and the voice would be, from someone who had had nothing to do with gathering the information. He was sitting in a sound studio somewhere in, the, in, in exactly. New York or Los Angeles. But, you know, I mean, these guys were pretty well known. Um, going to the newsreels was pretty exciting stuff. Vietnam is often referred to as, as the first television war. What does that mean? And, and do, you, do you see it that way? Um, yes. I mean, it was, it was the first television war in the same way that uh, the Model T was the first automobile. The comparison between the Model T and a 2023 you know, Ford is enormous. Television was important in the 1960s because it brought you the war for the first time within a relatively short period of time, within a couple of days. I have no idea how long it took for a film story from the Korean War to make it back from Korea to the United States. And even then, we're talking about the early 50s, television, there really wasn't any. The first time people would have seen any of that film would have been if they went to one of those movie tone news theaters that I was talking about. Or sometimes when you went to the movies, you'd go see a double feature, there'd be two feature movies, 
And between those double features, there'd be a Looney Tunes cartoon and a movie tone news. And that's Korea. So then fast forward 15 years later, you've got TV coming to people's living rooms as they're preparing dinner. Exactly. And what's the impact of that for Americans watching this war in their own homes? Well, first of all, if you were going to go to a, a movie tone theater, you didn't go every day. You might go a couple of times a month to go to the movies. You only saw this material when you went to the movies. Now you're seeing it every day, every afternoon, every evening at 6.30. When, uh, you know, Walter Cronkite or whoever it is who was the, the anchor at that time comes on, it is as much a part of your life as sending the kids off to school in the morning. At 6.30 in the evening, we're going to see what the hell is going on in Vietnam right now. And, and I'm guessing that that means that people can't put it out of their minds, that it's, it's there, and it's, it's, it's like that distant war that... It's not distant. It's right there. And this is new. It's proximate. That is really what's new about it. The fact that the technology is in the process of changing, the fact that you've gone from black and white silent to black and white sound to color sound, that has less of an impact, although the sound is important, than the fact that every night, every morning, you are seeing video from the war. Five of these people have already been helicoptered back to battalion command. Officially, they are described as detainees. They may be Viet Cong, they may not. About 50 feet in front of them lies the body of a dead VC. He was shot several times as he was about to throw a grenade at some Marines. And that video or film, as it was, shows American soldiers dying every day. Well, what it shows, remember now, you had a rotation of millions of young American men who was sent over there, many of them very much against their will. And they were there for 18 months. And they were dying at an extraordinary rate. The image that's in my head as you're talking is, is of a, a mother glued to the nightly news because her son is over there. That's right. And she is so worried every day as she sees the body count rise. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if it wasn't a mother worried about her son, it was you worried about a young friend. So everyone feels connected. And and, and one other thing, let me just, uh, uh, this only just occurred to me. I mean, you have this curious paradox where on the one hand, you have a more sophisticated level of communication than has ever been known in the history of man. You are seeing what's going on over there. On the other hand, what you don't have is what young people today have become all too familiar with, and that is the capacity to communicate yourself with your family. You can't just pick up the phone and call the United States. The only form of real communication was watching that television every evening and sometimes in the morning. 
because there was just a chance that one of those camera crews would be with your son, your buddies, your nephew, your grandson's unit, and that you would see what was happening over there. So all of it's happening for the first time. You're seeing it in a way you've never been able to see it before, and you're doing it at a time when you can't communicate any other way. There's, there's a common theory that, that the footage of the war showing the brutality of the war changed American opinion, and it turned a lot of people against it. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you buy it? Well, there's another factor that we have left out in our conversation, and that is, unlike World War II, unlike the Korean War, the Vietnam War had no censorship. So you weren't just seeing stuff from Vietnam that you never would have seen from Korea. You were seeing stuff from Vietnam that wouldn't have gotten past the censor. In World War II. In World War II or in the Korean War. Because it showed American troops suffering. Or because it showed American troops brutalizing some of the locals. You didn't want to show your guys doing bad things. Right. You didn't want to show the after effects of My Lai. The My Lai Massacre was one of the ugliest chapters of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. In March 1968, more than 350 men, women, and children were murdered by U.S. Army soldiers. Some of the women gang-raped and their bodies mutilated. Only one soldier was convicted, platoon leader Lieutenant William Calley, Jr. He served three and a half years under house arrest before President Nixon commuted his sentence. The New York Times broke that story to the American public. The television counterpart to that was the, uh, the Canadian CBS correspondent. Morley Safer. Morley Safer, showing the picture of a Marine with a Zippo lighter setting fire to a bamboo hut, a villager's home. And that was, I mean, the impact of that was hard to imagine today, where everything is captured on an iPhone. But here, it, you know, you had to have a correspondent out in the field with a camera crew who got it. And a Marine dumb enough to commit that kind of war crime well, with a camera. A, a Marine who really isn't thinking about... Right, because he doesn't understand the impact of the images. Doesn't understand the impact of the image, doesn't understand this stuff. What I'm doing right now is going to be in everybody's home. Maybe not tomorrow. It might take two days to get there. But that was the kind of story where it didn't matter that it came two days later. The moment that, that Marley Safer and his team captured of right. the, that Marine setting fire to a bamboo hut, which was not a tactical maneuver, had nothing to do with fighting a war. It was just absolute. Well, I mean, the assumption of the Marine, my assumption of his assumption, is that he thought this was a village that harbored the Viet Cong. And if they harbored the Viet Cong, this was a perfectly legitimate target to burn down their home so the Viet Cong would have no safe haven. 
I think, as I recall reading about that incident, Morley Safer was able to show that that wasn't the case and that it was, a lot of people died and a lot of suffering. Whatever. But Lyndon Johnson, you know, picked up the phone and called the president of CBS News and tried to get Morley fired. Do you think that, that because of moments like that, do you think that this new form of, 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 War coverage, war reporting, and television bring coming into the living rooms every night turned Americans against the war? Of course. Sure. There is a reason for censorship. And censorship was not just to prevent the enemy from learning secrets about our forces. Censorship was also designed to make sure that the government, whichever government, whichever administration was in power at that time, was able to shape the narrative of the war. And, you know, when you had good correspondents like Morley Safer out there showing what was really happening, that was screwing things up. No one can say exactly what effect those vivid scenes have on American opinion. President Lyndon Johnson blamed television for contributing to the loss of public faith in the Vietnam War. On March 31st, 1968, he announced he wasn't seeking re-election and that he was scaling back military involvement. The next day, he spoke to the National Association of Broadcasters. And it occurred to me that the medium may be somewhat better suited to conveying the actions of conflict than to dramatizing the words that the leaders use in trying and hoping to end the conflict. Is that true? Do you think that what he's saying is... I mean, is television better at conveying action than it is intentions? Of course it is. It's a visual medium. You know, so uh, do we cover wars well? I, I'm, I'm not sure that we necessarily cover them well in terms of uh, how accurately we cover them, but do we cover them well in terms of bringing dramatic pictures into the home? Oh, yes. Extraordinary. And is it easier to convey those dramatic pictures than it is to convey what it is Diplomats are trying to do behind the scenes to bring that war to an end. I think that's self-evident. TV's never been very interested in the shades of gray. I mean, again, when I first came back to the United States, I came back as chief diplomatic correspondent at ABC. And I got on the air three, four, sometimes five times a week doing one-minute stand-uppers trying to describe precisely what it is Johnson is referring to there, trying to describe what the diplomats were trying to get done. Uh, Were my stories as interesting as reports from Vietnam? Hell no. And today they wouldn't even get on the air. We are not winning in Vietnam now, and we never will unless the government in Saigon earns the support of its own people. This is Ted Koppel, ABC, Saigon. So, before we, we, we wrap up, 
this episode. Two, two questions I, I like to end this podcast with just for, for a little fun. When you look at the technologies that you used during that period in the 1960s covering Vietnam, was there a favorite piece of technology? Was there something that you said, wow, this is really incredible that I can use this? Sony put out, I may be exaggerating slightly, but I don't think so. They put out a new model of the Sony tape recorder, the one that's a little bit bigger than your iPhone is right now. They put out a new model every couple of months. And we correspondents would buy the new model. These every, are like compact recorders. Compact recorders because, A, because they were so small, and B, because uh, I can't even think of what some of the gimmicks were that they would attach to these recorders. But you had to have the latest gimmick. And they were pretty inexpensive. And you were using these to record interviews, to record notes, uh, so that yes. you didn't yeah. have to write them down or you could hear what people said? And well, I mean, most, mostly you were recording interviews, but we also, uh, ABC Radio had an executive by the name of Nick George. Nick deserves a tiny footnote in history because he invented something that was called the ROSER. A ROSER was an acronym for Radio On Scene Report. What Nick realized was that rather than having you come back to the studio right. and record a 45-second exactly. radio piece, he'd rather have you on scene. The breathlessness with, you know, I'm watching right now as the firemen are trying to climb into the third-story window, and one of the firemen now has a woman slung over his shoulder. Right. Oh, hell, that's a lot more that's exciting. Than sitting in, a, in an airless studio. And sitting in an airless studio right. later saying, and I witnessed a scene of great heroism. And those little mini-cassette recorders that Sony was developing in the late 60s. Those enabled you, you to do that. Right. So when flip the flip the the this the other side, was there a technology at the time that was just something that was really tough to work with, or you, you really hated because it was so inefficient? Well, uh, yeah, we didn't know any better, but those sound cameras, those Oricon cameras, the, the film sixteen millimeter film 16, cameras, sixteen sixteen millimeter film cameras. They were run by a separate battery. Uh, I think... You're looking at the photograph. Oh, yeah. If you look at the photograph, it's a battery. And it probably weighed five, six pounds. Right. That camera must have weighed 12, 15 pounds. The, the cameraman I used most often was my Hong Kong a bureau cameraman. Uh, and I remember whenever we would go into the field, he would hand me his canteen and say, Ted, would you carry this for me? Which was a perfectly reasonable and thing And it just to had do. water in it, but it was an extra weight. It was an extra weight. I mean, you know, these guys were carrying roughly 20, 20 some odd pounds through very difficult terrain. You know, the notion that young people today cannot imagine 
why anyone would have to carry 15, 20 pounds of heavy gear in order to record something that then had to be shipped around the world by air and picked up by a motorcycle courier at JFK and brought back to a studio so that the film can then be processed and edited and put together for an evening newscast. Why the hell would you do that when you can just go on your iPhone? Record live and send it to anywhere. I mean, the, the technological breakthroughs of the past 50 years. And that's what we're really talking about here. It doesn't seem that long to me, but it's 50 years. Ted, thank you. My pleasure. That was Ted Koppel. Ted was a reporter at ABC News from 1963 to 1979. He was the host of ABC News Nightline from 1980 to 2005. I joined ABC News in 2001. Reporting for Nightline was one of the highlights of my journalism career. The program was smart, rigorous, creative, and fearless. By the way, when I met Ted, we recorded a second interview for StoryTech about the birth of Nightline and the beginning of the satellite age. Watch for that episode coming soon. StoryTech is produced by Antica Productions, Trint, and the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University in association with WAER Syracuse, an NPR member station. And an interesting footnote, Ted Koppel studied speech and political science at Syracuse University, graduating in 1960. He was also a disc jockey and program director for WAER. Syracuse University currently houses the Ted Koppel Collection in their library, featuring over 6,000 episodes of Nightline, as well as other content related to Ted's career. Our senior producer at StoryTech is Kevin Sexton. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica. Our executive producers are Laura Regeer and me, your host, Jeff Kaufman. Mixing and sound design by Mitchell Stewart. Our theme music is by Josh Spear. Archival audio of TED in Vietnam is provided courtesy of ABC News. If you have story ideas, suggestions, or thoughts, you can send me an email at jeff at trint.com. If you like this show, you can help us grow by telling people about it. It's easy. After all, if Ted could get his film halfway around the world and on TV in the 1960s, you can text a friend or post a link on social media. And please, don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.